You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. While you're getting settled, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, and I will say good morning to you, Hope Bible Church. I had to write that down because I thought I would say it wrong, but it is fun to say that nonetheless. Uh, Our senior pastor is away this weekend. Uh, He is up in Brantford, Ontario, and we would wanted to share this with you as well. And the reason that he is there is because that church, that daughter church of ours, is celebrating their fifth birthday. Can you believe? Yeah. So we have a five-year-old going on like 35 Uh, And we're really thankful for what God has done there. We are making our third step in our series, Living Hope. And as the name of our church changes to hope, we're pairing this series as a biblical examination of the word hope, not in an effort, not in an effort to convince you that the name was a good pick, but more so to show you and to unpack the riches of this term from God's word. So let me get right at it. Here is our takeaway. It comes actually straight from the wording of our text that we'll read in just a moment. Nothing original from me today. Same old, awesome, life-changing word of God. Here's the takeaway. It's this. Hold fast to the hope set before you. You want to put it into three words. Hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Now notice I didn't say hold out hope. That's an English phrase. That's a throwaway term. Holding out hope is very different, isn't it, than holding on to hope. In fact, they're pretty much the opposite. When you hold out hope, you're basically saying that you're giving up. It's probably not going to happen, but just in case, I'll just cast one of my little magic wishes upon it and maybe it will work. I'm probably not going to get that job, but... I'm going to hold out hope. It's probably none of those left at the store, but I'm going to hold out hope. She's probably not going to call me back, but I'm going to hold out hope. The leaves, ah, forget it. That's, That's holding out hope. That's very different than holding on to hope. Holding out hope, it's it's, it's 99% not going to happen. That 1% chance, there's a chance. Listen, holding on to hope is something entirely different. Because the Bible is going to define hope for us not as some wished-for item or a desire in our hearts that we really wish would happen. Biblical hope, biblical hope is the sure and certain knowledge that something is going to happen. It's the sure and certain knowledge that something's going to happen. You can take that to the bank. This you can guarantee. This is 100% going to happen. Our hope, we need to hold on to. Now, why is this so important? Why is it so important to hold on to hope? Well, pretty bluntly, because people are losing hope. People are losing hope to the left and to the right of you. 
In this room, people are losing hope with the sickness that comes in, with the cancer that comes in, with the governments that continue to fail us, with the sin that's, that's ranging in our lives all over the place, with the environment that seems to worsen, with the world around us that just seems to have bad news headline after bad news headline, with the death that takes the loved ones from us. People are losing hope. What is it for you? If you were to fill in the blank, if I'm honest, sometimes I'm tempted to lose hope about blank. What is it for you? What's the place that you get into? Where are you finding yourself saying the things like, what's the use in trying? Nothing's ever gonna get better. It's just hopeless. Listen, listen, listen carefully. If you are not careful, you will begin to convince yourself that you're not on the winning side of things. You can trick your mind into thinking that you're on the losing side. You'll start to think that following Jesus maybe isn't really worth it. We'll start saying things like, what's the point? What does it even matter? Well, the word of God is clear for us this morning as we go to it. We are called to white-knuckle grip this thing called hope. We are to trust it. We are to believe it. We are to organize our entire lives around it. We are to hold on to hope. Hebrews 6, our text this morning. Now, would you look down with me beginning in verse 17? Verse 17, Hebrews 6. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable nature character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Let's pause there. Why should I hold on to hope? Why are you calling me to white knuckle grip hope? There are good reasons from our text this morning. Here's the first one I want to show you. Why should you hold on to hope? Well, because this, point number one, because your hope is unchangeable. Your hope is unchangeable. Nobody can mess with your hope. Nothing will ever change it. God has guaranteed it. God has guaranteed it. Look with me again at the text. Let's go through this text in Hebrews in verse 17. We'll start there. Now, let me just say this by warning. Hebrews is a tricky book. You can read it and you can miss a lot. So let's make sure we're getting what God's word is actually laying out for us, okay? Verse 17, let's go into it a little bit more thoroughly. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. That verse 17, to understand what was just written, what, to understand what we're reading right now, we need to understand and remember the story of Abraham. In fact, that's the context of what the writer's talking about. If you look back up at verse 13, he's saying, for when God made a promise. The promise that we're reading in verse 17 is the promise that was originally given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You remember that? 
God promising to undo the work of sin, the catastrophic effects of the fall that happened in Genesis chapter 3 with the entrance of sin in the world and all of a sudden man turning away from God. Man is setting himself up to be God, to turn away in his rebellion and reject God. God seeing the consequences of that. God seeing the death and the chaos that comes into this. God seeing humanity separated from his great love and God not content with this and God saying, I will move. And so he reaches to Abraham. You remember this, don't you? He calls Abraham and promises to give him a people. He promises to give him a land. He promises to give him a blessing. Now, ultimately, we understand fulfilled as we watch the Bible storyline, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the people of God in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's what God promised to do. But he didn't just promise. That would have been enough from God's mouth. He also swore an oath to it, we read. Did you see those two words in verse 17? They're the key words to understanding verse 17. There's the word promise, and then there's the word oath. Oath. We recognize immediately, don't we, that one word is stronger than the other. An oath is stronger than a promise. In fact, that word oath carries with it the idea of a solemn promise, a promise that's made before the eyes of God, and the promise that that declares this oath that if I make the wrong step, I will suffer the consequences. An oath is a promise on steroids. An oath is a promise with teeth in it. Think of it this way. Catherine says to me, hey, hon, before you go to work today, I need you to mail this letter. And I take the letter from her and I say, honey, I promise I'll mail it. And then I leave. That's the promise. But what if I stood there and took the letter? I promise I'll mail it. In Catherine, I swear to you right now (laughs) that by my blood, I will guard this precious letter and I will carry it to the postal authorities. So help me. And if I don't, I will bear it upon my shoulders. And Catherine looks at me and she says, okay, yeah, could get tricky in front of home hardware there, yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, We recognize, don't we, that an oath is more than a promise. An, An oath is more serious, isn't it? An oath comes at a risk. An oath comes at a cost. And that is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. God didn't just lay out the words to Abraham. He didn't just promise Abraham that your heirs would receive all of these things. He also, in Genesis chapter 15, we read a little bit later, that he entered into an oath, or we call it a covenant, with Abraham. A one-way covenant where he would swear by himself that he would do these things. I will give you these heirs, Abraham. I will give them a blessing. I will give them a land. I will make them a people. I will do it. God gives 
the oath as well. And that's the line of reasoning that the author of Hebrews is running us through. And he points us, doesn't he, through the grand story of Scripture. And, and, and the story that we studied not just a couple months back. This story, this grand story that God, out of the wreckage of our sin and death, that this God is redeeming for himself a people from all the world. He gives them a blessing. He gives them forgiveness. He gives them life. He gives them hope in himself. He brings them into a kingdom, and not just a kingdom made with, with wood and sticks and clay walls. He brings them into an eternal kingdom where they will be an eternal people before the eternal God for all eternity. This is the plan of God. And all of it, as we read in the unfolding pages of Scripture, from Abraham onwards, we read all of this is founded upon the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He promises to do this. He swore an oath to do this. Look at verse 18. So that by the two unchangeable things, that's the oath and that's the promise, in which it is impossible for God to lie. Pause with me for a second. Both the oath and the promise of God to rescue, to redeem, to bring a people of God into the presence of God, they are unchangeable, we're told. Now, that's the second time we've read that word, unchangeable. Unchangeable means can't be budged, can't be moved, can't be altered, can't be messed with, can't be tweaked to the left and, and, and to the right. Now, why does the text tell us this? Why does the text tell us that they're unchangeable? What's the meaning behind unchangeable? Well, the, the text has given us the reason for why they're unchangeable. Because they are rooted in the character of God. He told us it is impossible for God to lie. If God promises to do something, and God swears to do something by an oath, then your hope is guaranteed. Your hope is guaranteed. We realize this too also, don't we? That the hope and the promise are entirely dependent upon the person giving the hope and the promise. You realize this, don't you? Not just anybody can give you a hope and a promise that you believe in. What if you got a knock on the door just today? And you look out and there's no one there and then you look down and there's the person. There's a little five-year-old boy there. With, saying, hey, mister, I'd like to cut your lawn all summer long. I, I'll do that. Promise to do that. And look, I've drawn up a contract. And you take the contract written in crayon. And you say, okay. And you sign the contract. You pay him his money. Do you think that that's going to happen? Do you think you're going to get your lawn cut all the time, exactly the way you want it cut? No, it's a five-year-old. You have reasonable expectations for a five-year-old. The oath and the promise is entirely dependent upon the one giving that, and that person is five years old. What the author of Hebrews is saying, though, is that contrary to a five-year-old or any man or any woman, the oath and the promise are guaranteed, they are pledged from the mouth of an omnipotent God, an unstoppable God, an all-powerful God. The only one who can stop this God is God. He would have to change his mind. He would have to go back on his word. He would have to lie. But the author of Hebrews says, but he doesn't lie. It's impossible for God to lie. And because that's true, because that's true, 
God will never unwind his promise. God will never unwind his oath. And therefore, the promise is guaranteed. Guaranteed. Look at how this helps us. Verse 18 again. So that by the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Listen, listen, listen. Because his promise is guaranteed, your hope is unchangeable. Hold on to hope. It will never change. Nobody and nothing can touch your hope. Your hope is unchangeable. Your hope is firm. Your hope is fixed. Your hope is immutable. Your hope is unalterable. It's inflexible. It cannot be improved upon. It cannot be diminished. Your hope is irreversible. It's permanent. It's resolute. Your hope is stable. Your hope is unalterable. Your hope is unmodifiable. Your hope is constant. Your hope is enduring. Your hope is unchangeable because your God is unchangeable. And he said he would do it, and he's going to do it. That's the promise we read from God's word. Ain't nobody gonna touch my hope. And that's a double negative, but it's fun to say. Nobody is gonna touch your hope. The hope we have is 100% unchangeable. Remember how we started, though. I told you that hope is the sure and certain knowledge of something that will happen. In fact, I'll give you a better definition uh, we got this from a church called Harvest Bible Chapel, Oakville. I used to, I used to be a pastor there. Look at this. This is a good definition. Hope is the confident, undying expectation based on the integrity of God that makes our future secure. despite our circumstances. Confident, undying expectation. 100% going to happen because of the character of my God. Doesn't matter what the situations and the circumstances are of my life. This is going to happen. I can bank on it. Now that's a, that's a different definition than the world has of hope, isn't it? In fact, if I, I bet if we took God's word and we didn't have it ever in our lives and we sat down and I said, hey, let's come up with a definition for the word hope, we'd probably all be saying the same thing. Hope is basically like a desire. It's basically like a wish. It's, it's a feeling you have, a reasonable assumption that something's going to happen based upon what you've seen to happen before. Hope is a strange word. It's defined completely different outside God's word than it is in God's word. It doesn't have an accurate translation. Why is hope so different? God defines hope as a 100% reality going to happen, stamp on it, bank on it. It's absolutely guaranteed it will happen. So how did hope, how did hope become wishful thinking in the world? How'd that happen? How's the world define that so differently? The answer to that question takes us to the very center of ourselves. Because we have done with the word hope what we have done with our lives. We've removed God from the equation. Do you know how hope became wishes? Do you know how hope became wishes? 
we put hope on the wrong things. Let me show you this. Here's a, here's a worldly view of hope. When we define hope, we're, we're thinking about, hey, I'm going to hope that, that maybe my health will, will, will improve. The sickness is bad right now, but I'm hopeful that my health will improve. Uh, that's what the doctors are saying. That's what I'm believing. I'm choosing to believe. Or maybe I'm hoping that my health will stay long and steady for many, many years to come. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful in that. Or maybe it's in the stuff that I've got. I'm really hopeful that if I can save up enough money, we hope that we can get that thing really soon. Or, or I hope I can replace that thing really soon. I'm going to hope in that stuff. I really like, oh, if I could have that, hope, hope. Or about the people. I just hope that that relationship's going to work out. We're, we're hopeful we can stay together for a long time. That person means so much to me. I hope things are really going to be great. What about the situation? Well, I really hope the situation's going to change. I, I, I don't want to be in this place anymore. I hope that it's going to get better. I'm trusting it's going to get better. Uh, I'm expecting and hopeful that it will get better. Or the future. You know, I hope that it, today isn't going to be like tomorrow. I really hope that it's going to get better for me. This is how hope became wishes. Because what happens with our lives is, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. Put that away. Thank you. <laughs> what happens with our lives is that these things get shaken, don't they? Oh, I really hope my health's good. No, it doesn't, though. My, I don't control my health. I don't control the circumstances of my life around me. And then all of a sudden, these things get, and then the things that I hoped on, they didn't happen. And so I'll just say, okay, well, maybe next time it will work that way. I just wish that it would be that way. That's not how the Bible defines it. You already saw it. Here it is. This is what, Bible, this is what the Bible says that we need to hope in. What God has said he will do. Rather than just this little hair filament out to, I really wish that will happen, the Bible defines hope as a 100% reality based upon what God has said he will do. You see what, our say, what we're saying from God's word here this morning is that God's word is telling us that we are hoping in the wrong things. We're hoping in the wrong things. God's word is saying to us this morning, your hopes are too small. The things that you're hoping in, they're, they're too fragile. The things that you're hoping in are too weak. They're too changeable. But when hope is placed upon the guaranteed promises of God, you can bank on it. Rooted in the character, the unchangeable character of God, promised and pledged by this indomitable, unstoppable God, you can hold on to hope because God has promised it to be that way. You can guarantee your hope right now, like you can guarantee that the chair you're sitting on is holding you up, except that you can't guarantee that the chair you're sitting on will always hold you up, because someday it might rust, and someday the fabric might break, and someday you might sit on it, and it might not carry you. You say, okay, okay, well, maybe the floor, the floor, the concrete floor then, all right? You can guarantee it like you can guarantee the floor you're standing on, but the floor you're standing on might crack one day. It might break one day. It might cause you to stumble one day. And you say, okay, well, you can guarantee it like you can guarantee the ground underneath your feet is stable. But the ground underneath your feet can shake, and it can shift, and it can open up. And you say, okay, well, you can guarantee it like the sun will rise in the morning. But you can't guarantee that the sun will rise every morning because there will be a morning when the sun won't rise. Listen, listen, listen. You can't guarantee those things. You can't even guarantee that you'll be alive tomorrow morning. But you can guarantee that the hope that is found in Jesus Christ will never be shaken, never be moved. It is anchored in the person of God himself. And your hope, loved ones, is absolutely unchangeable. 
Hold on to hope, says God's word this morning. Hold on to hope because the God who never lies has promised it. And the God who never lies has sworn an oath to it. Nothing and no one will change your hope. It's absolutely guaranteed. Now that's enough for us this morning. That's enough for us to just say, Bible, close, stand and sing. But the writer of Hebrews goes on. He's feeding the engine and showing us how secure and steady and rooted our hope is. He's going to give us another reason that we need to see as well. Verse 19, let's read through the text here again. Let's go on with the writer. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot there also. Again, this is the book of Hebrews. It's dense. Let me summarize it for you in just a second. We need to hold on to hope. We need to hold on to hope because it is absolutely unchangeable. It's guaranteed. But we also need to hold on to hope because it cannot be, secondly this, it cannot be moved. Your hope is immovable. My hope is unwavering. The anchor holds. The anchor holds. Look with me again at verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Let me pause there. We understand that right away where we live, that that's nautical imagery. Nautical imagery. An anchor is something that you throw off of your boat and it latches into the mud or it latches into the rock and so it holds the boat in place. The writer of Hebrews says, this is not a boat anchor we're talking about. This is an anchor of the soul we're talking about. And then he gives us these two adjectives. It's sure and it's steadfast. It's sure, meaning it's established without any doubt whatsoever. No one is questioning that it's steady. It is established. It's not going to fall out. It's not going to get jiggled out of place. No one's going to move it out of its place. And all of a sudden, the anchor comes loose. It's sure but it's also steadfast, it's reliable. But what's interesting about this word is that word, it's steadfast, it also carries with it an idea of willpower, meaning that the anchor that you've got is also holding on. It's not gonna move because it doesn't wanna move. It's got willpower. It's got teeth, this anchor. It's tenacious. But listen, listen, we understand, don't we, that an anchor is only as good as what it's anchored into. We get that, right? If I was to throw off an anchor off the side of my boat into a pile of mayonnaise, that's not going to help me very much, is it? We are told, though, that our anchor is sure and steadfast. We have an immovable anchor because we are in an immovable place. We've been moored to an immovable object the anchor holds. The anchor is rooted in an immovable reality. Look at the rest of verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Watch this. A hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. 
I want you to follow this. The author's words are reminding us of the Israelites and the worship at the temple. Let me pull up a picture of Solomon's temple here. You remember this? We've seen this before. This is the upper court, the outer court, and where, where the offerings would take place, and you would go into here where the holy place would be, where only the priests were allowed, and then once a year, you could go, one, one person, the high priest, could go into this place called the Holy of Holies. That's where that big, thick curtain was that Jesus tore at his death, into that one place, once a year, one man could go and offer up a sacrifice on behalf of the people. He could do this with a lot of fear and trembling, with a rope around his leg in case something bad happened to him. He would go in and offer up this sacrifice. Again, that's one man once a year for the entire people. But this physical reality, this is just a copy of what Jesus has done. We are told, in fact, uh, uh, it's just a copy of the heavenly throne room. Uh, The writer of Hebrews will go on in Hebrews chapter 9, and he'll say this, For Christ has entered not into the holy places, not in the holy of holy places that you see on earth, into the temple, but he has walked into not the one made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He walked right into the, remember what was in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the throne of God. We're told that Jesus did this in the heavenly place. Then it goes on in verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest would do this every year in the holy places with the blood of not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Watch this. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that, that right there is where the anchor is tied to. That right there is what the anchor is locked into. Not rooted in the mud. No, 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 no. The anchor for your soul Believer in Jesus Christ, the hope that you have, the immovable hope that you have is rooted in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that anchor is going to hold. Nothing's going to move that. The chain of my hope from my soul leads to a throne on high where Jesus Christ is seated right now. And nothing's going to move that anchor. The anchor holds. The anchor holds. Holds. The anchor holds. The anchor holds. This week, our our church family, our staff was shaken with some sudden and and tragic news. Uh, Keith Burton, we'll pull a picture up of him, uh, who's been a part of our staff for many years and a part of our church family even longer, was called home very suddenly by the Lord without any real warning at 52 years of age. Keith was a faithful member of our hospitality team for many years. Uh, Chances are if you stop by the cafe, or if you came to an event recently, you were directly served by Keith himself. Or maybe maybe your kids were served by him at his extremely popular kids camp elective that filled up very quickly every year. Uh, Quietly and unobtrusively, 
Keith served his church. He loved his church. And he loved his God. And we loved him. It was a hard week for us as a staff. Harder week even for his family. He was deeply loved by his wife of 30 years, Irene, and his children, Lucas and Leah. His family is very, very dear to us. We're holding uh, a memorial service for him on Tuesday this week. It starts at 3 p.m. If you would like to come, I know the family would appreciate that. Uh, I know they would appreciate your love, your support, and most importantly, your prayers in this time of a loss. You know, in these most recent years, one of the things that marked Keith in his life was a deepening understanding of his constant need for the Lord, his constant need for grace. Keith knew that he was not perfect. Keith knew that he was a broken man. But listen, listen. The remarkable truth of the gospel is that you don't need to be unbroken to be immovable. You don't need to be unbroken to be immovable. The anchor still holds for you. You just need to have your hope anchored in the right place. The chain of Keith's hope, the anchor of his soul, was moored to the throne of Jesus Christ. You and I don't have it all together. This world around us could be crumbling, but nothing is going to move that anchor. And for the Burton family and their grief and their loss, and for you and I, because Christ is immovable and his work is fixed, you and I are immovable and fixed in that hope. The anchor holds. The anchor holds. Death cannot move it. Loss cannot move it. Cancer can't move it. Sickness can't move it. Nothing will ever undo the work of Jesus Christ, and so nothing will ever move that hope. Nothing. It's immovable. It's unbreakable. It's unyielding. It's motionless. It's solid. It's sure. It is steadfast. And though the storms of life, the storms of life with all of its confusion and all of its pain and all of its hurt and all of its suffering and all of its sorrow and all of its loss and grief and death and our little ships bob up and down and our hearts go up and down with the wind blowing and the lightning crashing the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul latched to the throne of Jesus Christ holds fast nothing moves that anchor the anchor holds so hold on to hope loved ones hold on to hope your love your hope is immovable the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham rested on the promise and the oath of God. But we have more, don't we? We have more. And that's what he's trying to tell us. You don't just have a promise and you don't have an oath. You've got actually what Jesus Christ has done. So go back to our, our heart diagram. You don't, not only the promise and the oath, but you've also got what, what God has done in Jesus Christ. And what's even more, you've got what God is doing right now for you, right now. You say, what does that mean? What's he doing right now? We're told this at the end of verse 20. We have this hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order 
of Melchizedek, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews is a complicated book, and Melchizedek is a complicated character. If you want to learn more, I would encourage you to keep studying through the book of Hebrews. Chapter 7, in fact, right next to us, is, is helpful for you. But it's enough for me to say this morning that Abraham saw Melchizedek as his high priest, his priest. His name meant king of righteousness. And whatever you're going to say about him, he was in the very least a forerunner of Jesus himself. The point of this verse is to say that not only has Jesus offered the better sacrifice, the one and done, once for all sacrifice, but that he is also right now serving as a high priest on our behalf, interceding for us. Remember the high priest role? The intercessory person between the people and God himself, the representative of man on earth. That's what he's pointing us to, that Jesus right now is interceding on our behalf, right now, praying for us right now. I came across, across this quote earlier uh, this week. Let me share it with you. I was blessed by it. This is from Robert Murray McShane. I ought to study Christ as an intercessor. He prayed most for Peter, who was most tempted. I'm on his breastplate. I'm on his heart. Now look at this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the, the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If I could hear Christ right now interceding for me, praying for me right now, next door, praying for the crisis, praying for the circumstance, praying for the difficulty, praying for the struggle of my heart right now, I would not fear a million enemies. And that's what he's doing right now, interceding for you right now. The high priest praying for me. Hold on to hope, loved ones. Hold on to hope. Hold on to that which will never move and never change. Let me take you one more time to our definition. One more time to our definition. Hope is the confident, undying expectation based on the integrity of God that makes our future certain, secure, despite our circumstances despite our circumstances. What's your circumstances? What's it right now today for you that's causing your hope to shake? What's the pain? What's the hurt? What's the trial? What's the difficulty? God's word lays out for us two options. Okay, you can choose to live a life that's hopeless, you can live your life for the, the, the things of the world, the stuff that's going to break. You can live your life for the health that you hope you're going to have. You can live your life for the relationships that are going to fracture and not going to be perfect. You can live for the future that's pretty much uncertain. You can live for these things and, and let the circumstances around me shake me over and over again. Or you can take your hope and lock it, secured, And trust in the one that will never break you. And trust in the one that will never fail you, never leave you, never forsake you. Trust in the one who promises you an eternal reality beyond what you can even imagine. And all of a sudden, these circumstances, instead of breaking you and pushing you up and down, begin to drive you to the arms of a loving God. Maybe that's what God's doing today with the trial, right today. 
Come to me, he's saying. Just today, come to me. Find your hope in me. Find your security in me. Listen, listen, if you're not careful, believer, you're going to start to convince yourself that you're on the losing team. And you're not. The Lord calls you today. Come to me. Root your hope in me, in the promise and the oath that won't ever, ever change. Anchor your hope in the immovable work that I've done for you and the sure and certain knowledge that I will carry you to the end. Hold on to hope, loved ones. Hold on to hope with great reasons. Hold on to that which will never move and never change.